welcome friends to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show we're returning to the subject of Moorcock and music. Moorcock's involvement with bands like Hawkwind and Blue Oyster Cult are well documented, and his influence on metal is widely known amongst his fans and listeners of space and progressive rock, and we touch on that with Ian Abrahams. We also touched upon his direct influence on more recent artists too, such as the Dungeon Synth of Elric, the Metal of Corum, and the Psychedelic Space Rock of Cernus. More recently though, Mike has, in his late 70s and now early 80s, continued to collaborate with and contribute to artists and albums, most recently thanks to the long-standing collective Spirits Burning, brainchild of musician and producer Don Falcone. Spirits Burning has included input from a wide variety of artists and rock luminaries over the years, including members of Hawkwind, Blue Oyster Cult, Porcupine Tree, Gong, Soft Machine and Praxis, as well as composer and David Lynch's music editor on Twin Peaks and Wild at Heart, Kim Cascone. The last two albums by Spirits Burning, though, have been adaptations of the Dancers at the End of Time trilogy, with direct input from Mike, An Alien Heat, released in 2018, and The Hololands, released in late 2020. As well as steering the Spirits Burning ship, Don Falcone has also produced a Deep Fix album in recent years, as well as unearthing and remastering older Deep Fix material, in the form of the Entropy Tango and Gloriana demo sessions from 1984. I'm delighted to say that Don agreed to meet me and Derry and Tom's for a gab about all of this, and more, so sit back, put aside your sitar for a moment, and join us as we discuss Spirits Burning. Okay, we're back in uh, Derry and Tom's, and I have with me Don. Welcome, Don, multi-instrumentalist, producer, the driving force behind the Spirits Burning um, collaborative uh, band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. overall. Yeah. As, as well as numerous other projects and musical excursions. Uh, thanks for joining me in virtual Derry and Tom's. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me, and good evening from my... Uh... Good afternoon. We're just about to hit noontime here. <laughs> yeah, but I'm assuming you've got good weather over there. Um, it's so this is a Northern California. Um, it is a nice day. Yeah. So because I'm English, of course, I've got to discuss the weather um, before we do anything <laughs> else. And I'm in Bradford in West Yorkshire, and it's minus one. It's trying really, really hard to snow. So I will try and vicariously enjoy your pleasant weather while we're, while we're talking. You know, I'm delighted to be able to talk to you not only about Spirits Burning and your collaborations with Michael Moorcock, but also just to explore your art and your own influences. Um, so again, thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm. But as as this is a, a Moorcock-focused podcast, we generally start off with new guests with a question as to how they came across Mike and his work and what it means to them. But in this case, I think it would be great just to find out more about your musical journey and how you got started in the business. So I I grew up in uh, a family where everybody at some point learned how to play an instrument. I took piano lessons, wasn't very good at it. Um, I think I actually took recorder lessons in grade school, but in high school, uh, we had the the band 
had one trombone player who was a middle linebacker and he, he was on the football field. So they put together a really cool special program. And I, I grew up in Pennsylvania. So they had like a, I want to say there was like a state grant or something. And they taught six or seven people how to play trombone. And I ended up playing trombone in marching and orchestra for seven years. And I met a woman who played bass guitar who said, bass guitar is cool. And she taught me how to play bass guitar. And so I was a bass guitarist first, really, besides trombone. Um, and, um, you know, at some point when I came to uh, San Francisco in the early 80s, I was uh, starting to dabble again in keyboards. And I finally made the switch to keyboards. Right, yeah, because back in the day, you played keyboards and synthesizer for Thessalonians. Yeah, yeah. So what, the other side of this would be that I was in uh, a couple bands, including one called Spirits Burning in the 80s. And, you know, we had some friends that would come see us, but we never really quite, um, you know, connected to the local scene. Yeah. You know, we weren't we weren't punk enough. We weren't cool enough looking, whatever. It just didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and then in the early 90s, um, two things happened almost concurrently. Uh, I was in the original version of Melting Euphoria, which was a space rock band. And actually when I quit, they then got signed and even opened for Hawkwind once. All right. Um, and then uh, I worked at an audio company with a guy named Kim Cascone, who started a record label called Silent Records. It was a really good ambient label in the 90s. And Thessalonians was one of the bands. So I was on their albums. Uh, we played one live gig. And then we had a number, there were three of us from Thessalonians, uh, Kim, uh, a guy named Paul Nyrink, who actually has a company that makes audio equipment uh, named Nyrink. But Kim, Paul, and myself uh, basically became Spice Barons. And we did a couple <laughs> out. Yeah. That's a brilliant name. It is. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, and we had a couple albums. Uh, one of them is probably confusing to people. It was called UFA or Unidentified Floating Ambience. And for every track or two, we took a different name because we were taking a different artistic approach. Yeah. So it's a compilation, but it's really just the three of us. Thessalonians were a very mellow, trancey, kind of dance-driven band. And funnily enough, on, I actually found it on Bandcamp earlier on, so I could give oh, it a cool. listen as well. Oh, yeah. oh, that was well, that was the second album. Right. Yeah, the first album, I don't know if that's available anywhere, but the first album was a bit more experimental. Yeah. And it taught me a lot. So it was, you know, there was like little, it was ambient that had in it, you know, pieces of industrial, mm -hmm. um, pieces of uh, ethnic music, because there's tabla. Um, so it was a great experience. It really opened up my eyes and it really did open the doors for me, for me to be a you know, semi-professional musician. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's very trancey, dance driven, you know, it differs markedly from, I don't know, I suppose there always is a connection between things like space rock and, and trance and ambient and synthesizer music. But what, what took you on the journey from, from playing bass? space rock to going out there in that you know that experimental journey into synthesizers so i um you know i i was always into instrumental music and you know a big fan of everything from ennio morricone soundtracks and then i bought all the early uh tangerine dream uh uh vangelis i even bought um 
you know, I, I would buy all the connective dots. So I was a fan of Aphrodite's Child and the yeah. 666 album, you know, with, with its, you know, Greek prog rock sound. Yeah. Um, but I, I would, you know, I was buying, you know, like Adrian Wagner and um, I'm trying to think, you know, Bo Hansen. And so anything, you know, I, I definitely, you know, went from a hard rock place which, you know, uh, Hawkwind could fit into. Yeah. And then interestingly, as I went into the synth stuff, Hawkwind fits into there as well. Mm. So um, I always had this instrumental side. And even in the 80s, I was doing um, some demos where I would write instrumental songs. And so it was a natural movement towards, I'm a big Brian Eno fan as well. So that's, mm. you know, where all things ambient in terms of modern ambient music kind of, comes out of what he was doing when he left Roxy. So uh, I, I think really what happened in the 90s was it was a natural fit. Um, I know Kim, uh, who is the leader you know, and the guy running Silent, was intrigued with my interest in Hawkwind and some of those synth bands. And probably the big thing was that he really pushed me to dive into the keyboards that I owned, like a Roland uh, D50, and not use presets and mm. to take those sounds and do new things with them and actually to make them change over time. So yeah, so, so it was a nat I think it was a natural place. It, it did take me away from, let's say, the rock side of things. Yeah. And that, and that didn't come back until you know, mid to late 90s. Um, although the Melting Euphoria stuff was definitely rock oriented. Yeah, I, I think the early 90s was a, a really fantastic time for that kind of music, wasn't it? Because I, I think yes. I, was, I was, despite my ridiculous beard, I was 18 in 1990. And I spent ah. I spent the eighties moving from the new wave of British heavy metal through to um, you know things like Pink Floyd, but all, but as as the eighties progressed into thrash metal and various other bits <laughs> and pieces, but then bands like Orbital in the UK, Orbital, the R, yeah. LFO were LFO English or American? I can't remember, um, but all these bands started to kind of come Future through. Future Sounds of London, was yes, a big one. yeah, yeah, and and all you know we were dabbling in certain things as as one did when you were 18 19 and actually kind of it was a, it was an explosion for me that kind of music and you know some of the more dance driven things like um, hard floor I'll, I'll give I'll give one more shout out to Kim what, yeah. one of the things he did especially when we became a three piece with the spice barons is we would get together and listen to music that could influence yes yeah. and so that you know that included the obvious people um you know, uh, you know, like the Orb and, and and Eno and so forth. But we would also listen to Miles Davis, Bitches Brew. Yeah. And I had ju I had just missed that. And it was like, oh, it's interesting. Like I can like pound on a keyboard with my fist. And what does that do? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I had already done experiments as a kid with paper in the back of a piano. Yeah. So I was familiar with John Cage and Stockhausen. But then we also listened to some, um, I don't know if they're lesser known, but we were listening to like Muslim gauze, and um, Zion Train, and so there, you know, we, we started to listen to dub, and there was a lot going on in you know Europe and yeah. around the world in the '90s. So it was, it was a great time. Yeah, I'm going to be listening back to this later and writing these down, and I'm going to end up going, <laughs> I'm going, going down a, a rabbit hole. I can see it. I can see it yeah. already. Um, so you've already mentioned that Spirits Burning was an early band of yours that you you resurrected in the in the '90s, and really being. A, a pioneer of exploiting the early internet to to explore things like remote collaboration and, and, and recording. How did that come about? So two things happened. Um, one was that um, as Silent was kind of ending and I had already quit Melting Euphoria, 
um, I worked out doing a solo project with Cleopatra Records, and I created a project called Spaceship Eyes. And I had done a, a synth-oriented album, and they asked me to do drum and bass. And so I did two albums with them that were kind of, um, I don't know, space rock meets drum and bass meets experimental music. Yeah. But that also opened the door to uh, something else they were doing, which was tribute albums. And they were doing, um, you know, like, you know, covers of you know, King Crimson and Genesis. And concurrently, locally, I had done a project where I did a, a Spaceship Eyes Meets Spirits Burning. We, we did, we opened for Prezant, the band from Belgium. And that kind of got me back into the rock world so that the core of that band, we did a cover of Red for the King Crimson album that Cleopatra put out. And we did a cover of um, Genesis's, um, uh, I'm forgetting what song we did, but it was one of their early, early songs uh, when Peter Gabriel was there. And um, that kind of got me at least thinking about rock again. And as that little, you know, this little reconstruction of Spirits Burning was ending, it got me thinking about why not do something that was more of a collective, kind of like the surprising things that Eno did with his first couple solo albums, where you had members of like Roxy Music, Hawkwind, uh, Pink Fairies. It was like, you know, weird, unexpected combinations. And then I also, you know, over the years, I bought a lot of these albums that came out of the side where like Phil Collins would guest star on, um, I can't remember if he's on the Butterfly Ball and the Grasshopper Feast, but there were these, these interesting concept albums. So I thought about why not put together a space rock collective, you know, Spirits Burning. And the reality, I think one place people kind of tend to think that Spirits Burning is only this remote distanced um, uh, project is that I actually had a lot of people who would come to the house and record here. And people like David Allen would usually come to um, San Francisco once a year for the first decade of this century, and, and actually a few years before that. So, you know, I'd actually be able to record him in my home studio. And I'm a tech writer by day, and so I was working at some point for a company called Orban, who had this thing called the AKG Odyssey. So that was a workstation that allowed me to do 10 tracks and add, um, for people who know, lexicon reverbs. And then at some point, um, I started working for DigiDesign, who made Pro Tools, which opened the door for me to do many more tracks. And then as I worked there, I could get equipment for cheaper prices and, you know, uh, basically, um, uh, you know, so that opened the door. Uh, and, and then, you know, they had uh, effects that they had built in with plugins. And then I started buying better computers. And all of a sudden, I could do things that were only being done in like really big studios. Yeah. Um, now, you know, at some point, you know, into this five, six, seven, eight years later, many, many more people around the world can do this. So as you get into the 2000s, yeah. you know, there, there are many more home studios. Yeah, well, how how prescient all that seems now as well with the world as it, as, yeah. as it is today that people are are kind of forced into doing this, and and we're seeing um, a, a lot of kind of high profile bands releasing things on YouTube where they're all in their own homes and they're all collaborating together to to, to record a piece of music, and but you were doing it like twenty five years ago. Yeah, in the in the mid to late nineties, you know, we would send, you know, people were still sending the cassette tapes. Uh, so there were cassette tapes that I then rec would re record digitally. Um, at some point, you had you know CDRs, 
Yeah. So you could take a CD and record to that. And then there was things like, um, you know, digital tape for DAT players and things like that. Um, but, you know, I, I can't remember at what point, you know, the early versions of Dropbox, yeah. <laughs> you know, where you could actually upload the files and not have to wait for something in an email and, and drive somebody crazy. Like, you know, their, their email system was shut down because you sent them a WAV file. Yeah, it all, it all still seems like magic to me because my my only brief dalliance with um, with music was probably round about 1993 or 4, doing some Depeche Mode covers with my mates Chris and Wayne with an old 4-track, <laughs> with an old 4-track <laughs> yeah, yeah, cassette. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's... it's uh, it's, it's, strangely enough, um, and I, I didn't see Wayne for 28 years, but he's now um, collaborating with me doing some music for part of the podcast, and we're doing it remotely, oh. and we haven't actually oh. seen each other for 28 years. So the technology, yeah. uh, what it what it enables us to do now is just is just wonderful. But I suppose working for Pro Tools at the time must have been pretty pretty um, serendipitous because um, I'm, I'm I'm not a musician, but Pro Tools was the biggie, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And what what happened? I, I'm so I don't know if I mentioned my my role, uh, but I'm a tech writer. Yeah. And, and so uh, around 2000, I became manager of the technical publications department. So for about a decade, I was responsible for the team that did all the documentation. Yeah. And I would read the Pro Tools guide from start to finish. And it's not that I know everything, but you know, I picked up a lot. And, yeah. and it's funny, I'm, I'm actually revisiting this weekend, a project I worked on in the early 2000s, uh, Weird Biscuit Tea Time. It was a foursome that included David Allen. And we're thinking of re-releasing um, the first album digitally. We, we may or may not do some remixes, but I'm going back listening to the CDRs, the old Pro Tools sessions. And one of the frustrating things, although it's maybe it's a, a good pat on the back long-term, is that how I used to work had problems you know i now name files better my <laughs> folder structure is better um so it's just it's funny how when i first started you just did things yeah. you threw things together and um <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I i honestly wish that been i'd been more fair with that kind of technology at the time because it's it's so strange we're talking about this right now because only a couple of days ago me and my partner phil were searching the house from top to bottom looking for a cassette which, yeah, which had that cover version of "Fly in the Windscreen" on it, and I can I can remember visualizing it in a in a chest of drawers at my old house in Hull before we moved, and I've not seen it since. And it either didn't make the cut or it's in a box in the eaves yeah. somewhere. But yeah, um, it's 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 absolutely fascinating for someone with your kind of interests and passions. That must have been like working inside a toy box. Um, yeah, and I, I think well, the other thing that happened was when I was in bands in the eighties and early nineties. I always had a sound person. Um, so there was a really good friend, uh, friend of mine for the first five, six years, and he would do all the recordings. And then the sound person for the band for the last, you know, like 86 or 87 to 9091 uh, is my wife. <laughs> and, and, we, and we weren't uh, a couple at that point. That happened afterwards. But at some point, um, you know, with early Thessalonians, Kim and Paul were, and a guy named Larry Thrasher were more the engineers. And then as I started to touch this equipment and, and learn it and write about it, I basically developed engineering and producing skills. Mm. And you're right, it did open up, um, I mean, you know, the ability to, I don't know, you know, add delays and reverbs and cut and paste and 
reverse stuff for introductions, mm. um, record myself at my own pace. And then all of a sudden, you know, record people here and then to contact people long distance and say, you know, here's a two track of the current version of the song. Can you add something? So yeah, you're, you're right. It was like a kid in a candy store mm. and it still is. Mm. Mocock fans are generally pretty aware of your two most recent albums, but how many projects did you undertake with Spirits Burning? Um, I think the new album is the 15th or 16th. Wow. And there, there's, there is a best of that came out uh, around 2010 uh, for the first decade. And then around 2015, there was a sampler that the label I used to be on put out that has, um, you know, basically songs that have people from Hawkwind yeah. or the Hawkwind family. And that included Mike. Yeah. Um, so that was, and that, that was available that if you bought, um, there was a Hawkwind, um, Space Ritual Revisited album that they put out around 2015, 2016. And so if you bought that from that label, you got this free. So it was a sampler. Mm. Actually, before these last couple of albums, I think you also produced the, um, the live album Deep Fix Live at the Terminal Cafe, didn't you? Yeah, it, it's not a live album. So right. That was a... Um, it, it, um, Mike's idea was that um, you would have songs by this band that played at the Turtle Cafe. And so it would be virtually live. Yeah. And um, we did add um, some uh, sounds that I had from somebody else's live gig at the very beginning of the album. So that there's, you know, in essence that you're, you know, again, at this gig at the Turnwell Cafe. Yep. And um, we eat, there are two songs on there I, for the um, the vinyl version. So the side A and side B first songs. Um, basically, it's almost like Mike is standing outside of or right near the doorway to this club or the cafe and, you know, talking about what's going on inside. Mm. So, you, so you've actually collaborated with, with Michael Mocock quite extensively over the last few years. So yeah, yeah. were you a fan of him previously? How did he, how did he might come into the picture? Um, I'll, I'll give you the, the question you didn't ask, but you know, like how did I get into liking the works of Michael Morcock? Hmm. Where did that start? Yeah. Um, so when I was a kid, I was a big Marvel comics fan and I, you know, I don't know a hundred percent the timing of this, but um, I was buying everything that Marvel put out. Um, so all the superhero books, the Westerns, the, um, so this is the early, this is, you know, I, I can't remember if it's considered their golden or their silver age, mm -hmm. but you know, the Fantastic Four and stuff like that. And the Avengers was my favorite book with Daredevil a close second. And I bought Conan mm -hmm. and Conan did have two issues with Elric in it. And um, I have a cousin who's about five, six years older, and he has an incredible library of uh, fantasy and fiction books. I mean, like maybe 10,000 books. Yeah. Um, and it used to be, uh, they lived in a half house in um, my hometown of Stilton, Pennsylvania, you know, back in the day. And I would go up, you know, this um, really um, hard to go upstairs up into the like third floor. And here was his bedroom and it was a library. And I started, bar he let me borrow books. And I started with Robert E. Howard. Mm -hmm. um, I remember 
Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, John Bruner, The Sheep Look Up, um, you know, it was something I really liked. And I was trying some other stories and books. And I'm not sure of whether he introduced me to Moorcock first or Moorcock was in that Conan, you know, mm. the two books. What I do remember pretty early on was I kind of gravitated more towards Coram and the Eternal Champion more than Elric. And I don't know if it's that side of me that's more of, well, this is considered popular. I'm going to go <laughs> the opposite direction. Okay. Yeah. And then the other side of it is Behold the Man. Oh, yeah. You know, for, um, was just a wonderful book. Yeah. And, and as somebody who was raised Catholic and was starting to, you know, maybe listening to too much Jethro Tull and uh, Black Sabbath, you know, and starting to question things and learn things, um, I found Behold the Man just to be a wonderful book. Yeah. And then, you know, Black Corridors, well, things like that. So, you know, that was the area early on. Um, at some point around 1972, um, I was getting into rock music and, you know, Black Sabbath, Jethro Tull, Deep Purple, Uriah Heep. And I took a chance and bought this album, Hawkwind Space Ritual. And for about a year, I wasn't sure about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, Hawkwind came out around 74 with Hall of the Mountain Grill, which Mike's not involved with at all but it really hit me. And I was starting to also get into Prague and Simon House was on that album. So there's a Mellotron. Um, th th by the way, there's a Mellotron behind me. Nice. Um, okay, <laughs> um, which is another story. But um, anyways, I went back and looked at Space Ritual and I saw the name Moorcock. And I had never, it's weird. I never made the connection that, oh, Space is Deep is that Space is Deep lines from the Black Corridor. Somehow I missed it. Yeah. yeah, I just, you know, purely missed it. But that was my way. In, and, I, and now I had the connection and then the Warrior on the Edge of Time album came out. So all of a sudden it's like, wow, here's this guy who I really like his books more than anything else from my cousin's library. Um, and I like Hawkwind. Hmm. Um, and so, of course, I bought, you know, his first, you know, the solo album that came out. So, um, you know, jump a couple decades later, um, I got to see Mike at one of his readings at a, a Berkeley science fiction fantasy store. I talked to his wife, Linda. Um, we made arrangements to potentially uh, have me do some work with him. And then the first thing I did was actually, um, I guess I, had, I knew about the um, Entropy Tango and uh, Gloriana. Um, Gloriana was another book I really liked a lot in those yeah. days too. So, um, but th there were the demo sessions that never got released mm -hmm. uh, properly. And um, so what we did was I made a deal with Mike that I would clean up the tapes that he had or, or a CD of the tapes um, and have them remastered. And then I was executive producer on putting that out. Um, and it was a chance to do an interview with him about yeah. that material. And then I would also have the rights to take four or five of the songs and then bring other musicians and put them on top and create new versions of those songs for Spirits Burning. Yeah. That, that really opened the door. What, what a fantastic journey that is. Because I, I talk to a lot of people, and, you know, I've got a lot of friends, and generally there seems to be three words into Moorcock. There's either those two issues of Conan the Barbarian <laughs> where it, which were, I, th I think, either famous or infamous, depending on your perspective. Because sure. 
Barry Windsor Smith's only point of reference for for Elric was the '60s ass pocketbook edition with the. And I'm a and I'm a big fan of Barry Windsor Smith. Yeah, great artist. Yeah, it, it did set him behind on meeting schedules. I'm aware. Yeah, but yes, his his the, the edition point, of Elric. Yeah. yeah, the pointy hat and the weirders. <laughs> which, <laughs> which uh, funnily enough, I've I've got that very copy of of Stormbringer right here. Um, yeah. Which uh, this is the copy uh, my granddad gave me in the early eighties. It's the late sixties ace pocketbook. Oh. So this is the very very first Michael Moorcock book I ever read. So, and the other way that people seem to get into it is is because of Hawkwind. Yeah. Or people were given a book by the granddad or the uncle or something else, and they, and they ended up going down that rabbit hole of finding out all of those connections between all of the different characters and all the and, different aspects of the might- champion. There might be a third way because it didn't happen right away, and that's Blue Oyster Cult. Of course, yeah, yeah. I, funnily enough, I think I've said this before. It might be kind of blasphemous for for some areas of of space rock fans, but my favourite um, Mocock co-written rock tune is um, Veteran of the Psychic Wars. Ah. Um, I absolutely adore that song. Um, my, mine might be Blade. Black Blade, yeah, 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 yeah. Black Blade, yeah. Which, which, you know, I, yeah, that's no, a great piece. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah, I love Veteran of the Psychic Wars. In fact, uh, at one point, I wanted to use it as the uh, the opening tune for the podcast, but then I realised that there might be rights issues, so, <laughs> so, so I, uh, I kind of pulled back from that. But no, I think it's wonderful. So, more recently, you've produced these two albums based upon um, Dances at the End of Time. Yeah. Um, what kind of process do you go through when you start to put something like that together? A, a pair of concept albums with multiple collaborators based upon novels yeah. with the involvement of the author himself. It sounds like yeah. a, an epic undertaking from someone on the outside. Um, well, every Spirit's Burning album is an epic undertaking because there's usually 30 to 40 people. Mm. And um, I have to be very patient as the songs develop, um, some that I start, some that others start. Um, I think what happened with dancers is number one, you know, deep into my reading of Mike's works, um, it became my favorite works of his. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did another interview recently. It's, it hasn't been published yet. It's on paper, uh, a magazine, um, if, you, if people remember those. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but anyways, um, I made, um, how do I put this? So there are some things that are timeless like to me, Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland is timeless. Mm. It's It still sounds like a great guitar album now. Mm-hmm. And while there may be albums we love from the past, you know, not everything is necessarily timeless. You know, like some sounds of kind of, you know, some synth sounds are overused or, you know, or, or you know, sometimes, um, you know, the Lynn drum sound of the 80s sometimes doesn't sound really great right now. Um, so anyways, I think, that Hendrix's Electric Playland is timeless. I think Mike's Dancers at the Edge of Time books are timeless mm-hmm. and some of the best stuff that he's written. Um, so it was something that I still love and would still go back to and read. So at some point I asked them if it was okay if I did a Spirits Burning adaptation. And you know I knew that that probably would mean that he may or may not be involved. You know, so I'll get to that part of the story later. Yeah. But it really, you know, so so what I did was I started off and I wrote some pieces, um, you know, knowing that uh, they might have words, they might be instrumentals. And I invited Albert Bouchard or Al 
from Blue Oyster Cult's original lineup because um, we'd worked together before on a couple songs. And the big surprise was he said that he adored what I was trying to do, thought it was a wonderful thing and you know deserved its place in the sun and he wanted to be involved as much as possible oh, what so a fantastic validation oh. yeah so suddenly he was involved in every song so sometimes that meant that he would be playing drums or other instruments that he plays uh sometimes and i gave him a bit of free reign i said if you want to start some songs that's fine he ended up starting about one third of the songs on the Inalien heat um album and then Something else happened that he found that he was really good at reading the book, uh, sometimes taking train rides in the New York area. And he was very good at transcribing passages of the book into lyrics. And he was, and he was having fun doing it. So I was like, okay, why don't you continue doing that? And I'll concentrate more on the mixing and bringing together musicians. And then the next thing that happened was he started bringing in Oh, Donald Buck Dharma Roser to sing the first song. Um, and other people from Blue Oyster Call and other people from New York, like, you know, members of the Dictators and things like that. So he became a co-collaborator. So both on that first album and the second album, um, which is The Hollow Lands, you know, he really was the main co-collaborator. The next part of the puzzle was, could I get Mike involved? And so I would let Mike hear what was going on. And he may or may not listen closely. It's hard to tell. He's busy writing books. And I understand that. Um, but at some point, I said, can I basically travel to where you live when you're in the United States half a year and do a remote session? And so we worked it out with him and Linda. And I went to his house. And I basically had you know, planned that, OK, how can I get him on each song? So on some of the songs, he would do background vocals, maybe a couple songs he would do narration, and maybe a couple songs he would play guitar. Well, he can't play guitar anymore, but he can play harmonica. So I was like, okay, we'll do harmonica. So I had everything worked out, um, planned. I went to his house with my uh, Pro Tools uh, <laughs> you know, gear, you know, yeah. my, my computer and my box. And I remember that I had probably, you know, an extra microphone just in case. I may have had an extra computer just in case. You because know, we were traveling, you know, by, by you know, air to get to him and everything. And, um, and I seem to remember I did some funny things where I had the mics in a case and the people in the airport were like, you know, what is that? Um, you know, this strange equipment I had to explain. <laughs> and I had a manual for the microphone. And, um, so, uh, so anyways, the session went really good. The only thing I, you know, big lesson was I tried to do it all in one day. So I probably like got up at two o'clock um, Bay Area time, traveled to his place in the morning. Him and Linda picked me up. We went to his house, you know, did like two sessions within four hours. So anyways, that leads me to the second time we did this, I gave a day and a half, which was better. Yeah. Um, plus, we had also worked out by that point that I was producing the Michael Moorcock and the Deep Fix Live at the Terminal Cafe album, and that meant that there was some new stuff that we were doing, and so we recorded that as well. Uh, if you want to get into that later, I'll, that's we'll talk very about productive, that. yeah. Yeah, and Mike's really good. I, I will say that you know he um, 
you know, I, I really laid this out like, here's the first song, here's a piece of paper, and here's the lines, listen, can you sing to it? And he's, and, and for uh, The Hollow Lands, I actually worked out a song that was really, for the most part, my lyrics, um, but based on um, how Jared Cornelian, the character in uh, The Hollow Lands, felt about not being in the same time anymore mm. with Amelia Underwood. And he's very good at just kind of going with the flow. I think what makes these albums so um, appealing and fresh is because everybody's done Elric, you know, everybody's done <laughs> the rock music, everybody's done the Elric album covers, the Rodney Matthews album covers. Yeah, yeah. And recently, I've kind of gone on a little bit of a, a journey down a rabbit hole on Bandcamp, just on Bandcamp, purely on Bandcamp, yeah. because I, I, I source most of my new music from Bandcamp because it's an absolute treasure trove. But... After doing a, a music show with uh, Ian Abrahams, uh, who wrote a biography oh, of Hawkwind, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ian and I talked about some of this stuff. So I looked on Bandcamp and, and just to see what and there's there's rock music. Oh, yeah, brilliant, yeah, yeah. There's, so I'm uh, I'm, show, I'm showing Andy uh, the book yeah. by Ian. Yeah, okay, which is an absolutely terrific <laughs> book as well. Um, there's there's the rock music. There's the power metal. There's there's strange Eastern European doom metal stroke ambience there's ambient and yeah. experimental electronica there's dungeon synth yeah, <laughs> which, yeah. <laughs> which is under the name of elric there are so many young musicians picking up and picking up that torch and carrying it forward but but to have that um that interpretation of of, of novels that may sit kind of outside of i don't know the big five or whatever the big five moorcock fantasy characters but nevertheless yeah. Hardcore Mocock fans all adore the Dancers at the End of Time trilogy for for good reason, and it is yeah, it yeah. is timeless. And one of the, the other thing that I really enjoy about this is I remember picking up um, New World's Fur on CD in mm-hmm. probably the early nineties, just after I'd got okay. a CD player, and I found it really, really quite mind blowing and hard to categorize. Much like most of his fiction, it kind of defies categorization and any attempts to pigeonhole it, even though you know yeah. people talk about him being fantasy or sword and sorcery. And that's definitely carried over to An Alien Heat and The Hollow Lands. It's varied, but it maintains a really strong theme and identity throughout. And sometimes it feels a little bit like, um, I don't know, dare I say, folky. And other times it feels like a really, you, you, could, trans, you could transfer that music into uh, a colourful musical. And all yeah. singing, all dancing, cover, cover, you know, colorful musical, and, I, and everything in between. Yeah, and I think Al's um, greatly responsible for that because I I had done a um, uh, a concept book a couple years before called Starhawk, and and Starhawk is many things to many people. Everything from um, the New Age goddess ritual books to Starhawk was the original. Um, before there was Star-Lord in Gardens of the Galaxy, there was Starhawk, who technically, I guess, would have been the Sylvester Stallone character. Right, but, okay. But, but anyways, there's a guy named Mac That's a Maloney. deep cut. <laughs> yeah, that, that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I was all prepared for Starhawk, not Star-Lord. But anyways, um, there's a writer named Mac Maloney, who's another MM, like Michael Mordcock. And um, he had done some books, uh, The Wingman Adventures, and he did a series called Starhawk. And I did a, um, an adaptation of his Starhawk book. And one of the big differences between that and the Moorcock ad- adaptations that we've done is that that one 
for the most part on most of the songs never mentions people's names. And for better or for worse, there's, there's pros and cons here, you could take most of those songs and not necessarily know the story. Whereas I think the influence of Al was to kind of take a more theatrical approach, especially by the time we got to the Hollow Lands, and you have a couple songs where there's four or five vocalists, yeah. because there's different people from the book with the lines they say. And that's a tricky thing. It's yeah. a difficult thing. Actually, mixing them is a, is a tricky thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I know that you know people who don't know the story, um, and if they don't go to the book, it may be a little more difficult to you know, get into some of that material. Yeah. Those are the bits that I really enjoy that remind me of, of it being a, a musical because yeah. I, I am a bit of a fan of a musical. So um, I can't remember which track it was. Is it um, Time Machine Cabriolet where they're, um, they're actually answering each other in, in the lines of music? And it's, it's, it just put a big, broad smile on my face because I just yeah. really appreciate that kind, of, uh, that kind of music and that kind of storytelling. Yeah, probably the big one, I think, one of the big ones, is Memorable Night at Cafe Royal. Yeah. Because um, that's like everybody from the future and uh, back in 1896 are all there. Yeah. You're doing these Spirits Burning albums with, with Michael Mocock, which is an adaptation of his music, but how did the um, the Live at the Terminal Cafe come about and how did, how did that work process-wise? Because I'm guessing Mike's input into that was much greater. Yeah, well, that, um, fully. Um, I mean, you know, one, I'm also, for those um, who who aren't seeing this and you're only hearing this, I'm cheating and looking at the CD to make sure I like member names. Because <laughs> yeah. I, for, real quickly, Spirits Burning has had over 250 people involved. Yeah. So it's, um, it, it can be a bit of a matrix. But anyways, um, so Mike had for a while uh, wanted to do a Cajun inspired album. Um, and he had put together a band with Martin Stone and um, some other people. Uh, I think they were all pretty much located in France. And, you know, Mike would, you know, spend half a year there. Um, and, you know, I, I had made a quick attempt to say, here, you know, I did some research on Cajun music and you know, here's some songs I started. And, you know, Mike and Martin between them decide not to go there. So yeah. they really, you know, they basically worked out, I, I want to say um, six or seven songs, I think. And, you know, they had a band they put together and I was always in the background that, you know, I was, you know, I would sometimes post on, I want to say at that point, um, MySpace was still around. And we, I would say, here's some lyrics that Mike's working on for a proposed Cajun inspired album. And Mike knew that I was interested in mixing it and producing it, whatever that might mean, because that mm. can mean different things at different times. So a few years go by, uh, they did a number of recording sessions in France. Uh, Mike wrote or co-wrote most of the songs. Uh, the ones that are co-written are with uh, Martin. And um, at some point they worked out um, these six, seven songs and they really were ready to give them to me. Hmm. I have no idea what Martin thought of my involvement, but he passed away. So Martin was no longer in the picture. Right. And I was still checking in with Mike that I'm interested, I'm interested. And you know, Mike knew what I did with Spirits Burning and, and was very happy with the, um, you know, the cleanup and the mastering of um, you know, the demo sessions album. 
And I, you know, he, you know, at that point, he really had to put a lot of trust in me and he took that leap. Um, and uh, then we had to, you know, get the multi-tracks to me. And so that was a little bit of, um, you know, how do you get it from this studio that may or maybe doesn't exist anymore and who the engineer was there. So they got the material to me. I now had it in my hands. And, you know, we talked about, yeah, I, I think I at that point put on my producer hat. And the very first thing I said, actually, I'm not sure if it was the very first thing, but um, and actually let me back up. So I know Mike wanted that to add violin, fiddle, or accordion to a couple songs. And so he had a local musician there, Sean Orr, um, who you know, basically did um, Cajun and other folk music. So he was kind of lined up to be involved in one or more pieces. And um, between the both of us, we really struck out every time we were trying to get accordion players. But I started to put on my producer's hat and I said, um, this one song, The Dream of Eden, how would you feel if we did another version of it to end the album that maybe was a stripped down acoustic version? So, you know, Mike was you know, maybe open to that. Um, and I said, I have a violin player who's really into his works and it appeared on the Spirits Burning and Mike Moorcock stuff. And that um, basically um, uh, was uh, from Camper Van Beethoven, you know, their, their uh, violin player. Hmm. And he said, okay. I also said, can we try having a female vocalist in a couple songs? And that probably was a stretch for him and even I think Linda, but they kind of let me go there. So I had a woman I used to work with who was actually now in a, so this was from one of the Spirits Burning bands in the uh, 80s. And she was now in a country swing band because that's the kind of music <laughs> she was really in, which again, seemed like a natural fit. Yeah. Cajun inspired stuff. So I said, let me go there and record her for a couple pieces. And then I also said, you know, the other big thing here is I want to be on at least one piece. Um, so, you know, I, I, oh, and then we were going to try to get Pete Pavley from the old days, uh, the old Deep Fix band, um, to basically help out on another piece. So by the time I went to his house and recorded him for, um, at that point, that was the sessions for the Hollow Lands, mm -hmm. and I was there for a day and a half. A couple things happened. One is at one point, Mike just started singing St. James Infirmary a cappella. And um, it was brilliant. And um, so I had like two or three takes, and it was clear that he wanted to add that to um, Live at the Terminal Cafe. Yeah. Um, uh, fast forward, you know, the idea was to get Pete Pavley to play on it. Uh, Pete no longer really plays cello and didn't really have the timing. And I ended up doing kind of um, ethereal improv piano. And Linda and Mike loved it. I was kind of nervous because it's, I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, take a step back. I don't practice as often as I should. I'm not the greatest musician. I'm really good at starting songs and I have a good way of like knowing what can work. Yeah. Um, so anyways, they loved it. Now, back to uh, Texas and that session there, Mike also wanted to do two songs where um, there was narration. And I'd already agreed with him that there wasn't enough material as is, and we needed new material. And so what he did is he did uh, you know, reading from the book, two parts of the blood uh, storyline. And I had those to play with. 
And then I forgot there was one more thing is one of the pieces, and I have to double check, um, Sam Oakenhurst's story actually was like, I don't know, 16 minutes long. And it was, um, you know, Mike kept repeating lines and the band kind of jammed through these rhythms. And I felt there was enough there to basically create a whole different song and not have this 15, 16 minute long song on the album. And I basically took two parts, kind of looped them and then did keyboard chords over them. So I changed the focus of where the band was. And then Mike, when I was in Texas, sang blood lyrics to them. And so we essentially created a new song with the old band. Um, so we now had, you know, the original six, seven songs. Um, we had St. James Infirmary. We had this new blood piece. And then I had these two narrations. So I went back to the Sam Oakenhurst stuff and I was like, okay, if I think a little harder and maybe like use the band differently, so it's still them playing together, but maybe not as focused on, let's say Martin's guitar part. Can I create new songs? And that's what I ended up doing. So we had two new songs. So all of a sudden you had a really good CD. I can't remember if it's 45 minute length, you know, CD and vinyl album. And um, we reworked them and I did, you know, new mixes, let Mike carry them until he was happy with them. And then, um, you know, brought in uh, the person that's been doing the mastering to kind of normalize them and, you know, kind of uh, clean up the, you know, I have a tendency sometimes to have a little too much muddiness and bass material in the mixes. Um, although I've gotten better at that since the early 2000s. And then, um, and then I basically said, let's, I, I think the point maybe here I wanted to make is I really, as a producer, took this to the next level as almost at this point managing Mike and yeah. this album. And I basically said, here's some labels we could go to. Here's the pros and cons of these labels. And when all things were said and done, um, I worked out a deal with Cleopatra Records and um, surprisingly, my name's actually on the contract with Mike's and Linda's. And um, you know, I worked out in advance. I worked out, um, uh, you know, we got vinyl, not just CD and digital. Um, you know, that was cool. Um, that's, there's nothing like having a nice big mm. LP size cover. And then I, I can add also along the way, um, you know, I was working with some artists um, and at some point, I can't even remember who found the cover, which um, is in public domain. And we went with that. And oh, and then the other thing was Mike had access to Walter Simonson, um, who had done artwork for the Multiverse comic. Yep. And um, Walter was great to work with. And my wife and I came up with some ideas. My wife, my wife does all the layout for most of the stuff I'm involved with. And we basically said, would it be okay to do cutouts of some of your artwork that's in those books? And Walter said, of course. And then he actually, there was one piece of artwork um, where uh, one of the characters is holding a sword and it, get, it gets cut off on the page. And Walter said, why don't I go in and redo that and add in the end of the sword? And so he did new artwork to combine that. Fantastic. That's phenomenal artwork as well. Yeah. His work in the multiverse comic. 
isn't it? Yeah. So I remember. Yeah I, so. yeah, I remember reading Blood and all the stuff with um, the Chaos Engineers and the Grey Fees and all that type of thing, and thinking I don't really know how to visualize all this. And and Walt <laughs> Simmons did a fantastic job of actually making that into something, which which yeah. I found quite difficult when I originally read Blood. On, on the subject of of album covers, though, the the, the cover to the Hololands is absolutely phenomenal. And Keith, I, I, Keith Donald. Keith Donald, and the, the is I saw his original sketches and the finished art, and it is absolutely yeah. magnificent. It's beautiful. So, so there is a story there, and, and it fits back to Texas again. So, what happened was when we were talking about covers for Live at the Terminal Cafe, um, I knew Keith was available, and he was a Moorcock fan, and I actually brought him in, and he did some designs. Um, unfortunately, um, Mike and Linda didn't like them and, and felt they didn't fit. And in retrospect, I kind of agree because they had more of a Hawkwind cartoonish look. Hmm. Um, they, they're good material, but they didn't quite necessarily fit or actually what it, we ended up using where we went down that line. So um, in the meantime, you know, I, I knew of Keith because of these original pieces he had done. And um, I actually took uh, I, I can't remember if it's screenshots or JPEGs of them to my trip to Texas. And while we were doing the sessions for the Hollow Lands, I was telling Mike, like, you know, you know, we need to at some point come up with a cover and here are some things. And then I showed him Keith's work for those covers. And he said, that's the one. And, and especially for the cover, mm. the picture of Jerick. And what was also nice was that the first album, An Alien Heat, um, had wonderful artwork. And it was basically focused on Amelia and her time traveling. And it was kind of nice to have the second one be Jarek. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, at that point, once we had that, I could go back to Keith and say, hey, we're in. You know, you're going to be on the cover and the inside artwork. And then the other thing that happened was kind of brilliant from Keith's side. I said, you know, we actually have you know, so many lyrics. Um, we probably could use more art artwork. And I said, there are some key and fun songs like, um, you know, when they're, uh, the, the dancers are doing their thing, playing with ships. And you know, would you be up for doing artwork of the ships? Uh, you know, there's some artwork at the end when Amelia and um, Jarek are kind of the beginning of time, if that is where they're at. And then I think the other one was Robot Nurse, that whole thing, because, you know, again, these were like, juicy songs with juicy lyrics that both Al and I really wanted to cover. And then having this really good artwork that was additional to what Keith had done years before. Fantastic. So are we going to get the end of all songs? Of course. And um, where we are with that right now is um, I'm taking the same approach. Um, so the initial approach is I write a little more than a third of the songs. Keith, or no, I'm sorry, not Keith. Uh, Al writes or starts uh, a third of the songs. And then there's a good friend of mine from a, um, an ambient industrial project called Grindlestone, uh, a guitarist named uh, Doug Erickson. And he had started two to three songs on the first two albums. So where we actually are with that plan is Doug's three pieces that he started are in place. And I've already started to add other musicians, um, you know, myself, uh, Danny Miranda, who's the bass player of uh, Blue Oyster Cults working on them right now. He also worked with Queen and Paul Rogers. Uh, the connections here are incredible at mm. times, mind blowing. Um, 
And uh, then there's, um, I've started a little more than one third of the songs and Andy Dalby and from uh, Arthur Brown's Kingdom Come, uh, the late Steve York recently passed away, uh, a bass player who played with everyone from Marianne Faithful to Graham Bond, who if you don't know who Graham Bond is, everybody out there should go check Graham Bond, uh, uh, mid to late 60s keyboard player who influenced, um, you know, where Arthur Brown's uh, uh, fire yeah. keyboard keyboardist Vincent Crane and even John Lord from Deep Purple he influenced them quite a bit right um, some great stuff um, but anyways uh, uh, Al may not be available to start as many songs this time uh, he actually is working on um, the second Reimaginos um, so that's taken the old cloister called Imaginos Stories. He's also has projects with uh, his brother, the Bouchard brothers. He has Blue Coop with uh, one of the original Alice Cooper uh, members. And then he actually recently uh, joined the new current version of the, of the Dictators. Right. So, so Al's quite busy, but he is going to be doing the um, lyrics. So he is um, uh, you know, taking that assignment again and helping out there. And he's also a great sounding board on keeping me honest on where we go with things. I hope that he does play, um, he, he's already on two songs, I believe, playing drums, but I hope that he is, you know, as a musician, um, you know, on it. And then we'll, you know, I'm probably gonna end up starting more songs than the first two albums. But yes, we're, we're definitely there uh, deep in it. Uh, I should add something else. I. I so as a tech writer by day, I read a lot and edit a lot. And it is hard for me to, and I read a lot of newspaper and sports articles. I'm a big sports fan. So it is hard for me to read a lot of fiction. For the last five years, I've been reading the Dancers trilogy over and over and <laughs> over and over. And um, I just finished for the second time in the last year, rereading the third book and charting it out and understanding it and thinking about it. And then it's interesting to see where Al and I differ. So for, you know, I, some places you're trying to shortcut it. Um, you know, I, I, it'll be interesting to see if we can do the third book in one album, by yeah. the way, because there's 28 chapters, I believe. Um, but uh, Al did a better job in his um, review of it in terms of remembering the, uh, is it the Temporal Guild or the Guild of Temporal Time? I forget the, but. but uh, yeah, Guild of Temporal Adventures or something. Yeah, so I, I kind of yeah. skipped over them except for the first couple chapters. And he did a better job of remembering them. So he'll, he probably um, will influence, you know, the lyrics. And we won't forget them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I, I honestly can't wait to read Dancers again. When I kicked off this podcast, we thought, right, we're going to revisit Mocock books that we read in our youth. So with a couple of exceptions, I'm rereading them sometimes for the first time in 25 years. And Which is like reading it the first time. Yeah, and I, I haven't read Dancers at the end of time since the early 90s, probably. I mean, quite apart from the fact of remembering the books and thinking they're brilliant, my chief kind of circumstantial memory is at the time I remember my mum's a big reader and she said, what are you reading? I said, mum, I'm reading this absolutely fantastic Mocock book um, called An Alien Heat and I lent her it. And she never said anything about it and, and it, it wasn't until about six months later when um, I was discussing it with a friend. And, and I thought that was possibly the worst possible book I could recommend to my mother. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, um, but yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to reading them again, um, and did, we will get did, to them eventually. Did she? Did she by any chance ever look at them and read them? Oh yeah, she read it. Yeah, because by the by the third book, you know, the love story really kicks in. Yeah, and there's a lot of dealing with family and relationship issues that gets beyond. You know, I mean, you know, it's just you know, virtue and yeah. so forth is intertwined between all three books. And yeah, you know, my mum's a big reader, and I'm I'm sure I probably worried about that as a as an eighteen nineteen year old a lot more than I needed to because you know she she's she'd actually read Moorcock herself in the seventies. Okay, okay. Because my granddad's books used to make their way around, you know, my uncles and my dad and everything else. It was it was the eighties. By the time I started to get my my dirty mitts on them as a like a thirteen fourteen year old. Yeah, but yeah, I can't, I can't wait to read them. We've, we've just we've just concluded um, the Night of the Swords, so we've just uh, mm-hmm. finished our first look at Corum. But having a day job um, can be yeah. a real pain yes. in the ass because I'd love to be just doing nothing but the Grand Mocock reread. <laughs> when, I, <laughs> well, when I when I when I get done with this, I'll probably let's see. I have it on the other side of the room. Um, da, 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 hold on, the uh, the War Amongst the Angels. Yeah. Because um, I haven't read that in full, yeah. and um, Blood is part of that, and I and I, you know, I also know I, I believe the Blood part is Linda's favorite books by Mike, so I, I kind of want to go back and read that, and then there is a side of me that would love to go back, you know, to the Eternal Champion mm-hmm. and and the Quorum stuff. Um, we'll see. Yeah. It's, it's it, like I said, it is hard because of the day job. Yeah, we've been um, working our way through them, and I've, I've, we've done. We've done The Eternal Champion, the novel. We've done Elric of Melniboné. We've done Duel in the Skull. Just about finished the final programme, and we just finished The Night of the Swords. And it's it's fantastic rereading them again and just yeah. kind of looking at them with an older eye. It's it's yeah. It's been really good. And actually, funnily enough, reading The Eternal Champion again with, with uh, an older eye, I had a completely different take on it. To what I did, yeah. uh, you know, back at the time, a completely different take. But this is this is the joy of reading, isn't it? Yeah, and Mike's writing has changed; it's developed a lot. Yeah, um, and he's you know, I I'm not sure if it's the best way to describe it, but he's a much deeper, heavier yeah. writer. And and I'd also say, I'm not sure. So all of the 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 beauty of the phrasing, which is in the dancer series, and and Al just loves rediscovering it yeah. and kind of almost bring it back. To my not to my uh, vantage point, like oh wow, I, I I don't even know if I saw that, but I don't know if all of that is in those earlier books, um, and I know that a lot of the early early stuff Mike would write, you know, in a couple of days or a week, and um, I'll give you a real quick story, um, you know, in in my teens, I briefly worked in the summers at a, a Federal Army Reserve Center. In, in the Harrisburg, Harrisburg area. And we basically were responsible for getting, it was a warehouse of just all the checks of all the people. So the, it was those, um, I'm sure I forget what those are called, those computer readouts cards. Yeah, index. And, oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, um, we were we were responsible to do two things, get them when people requested them and put them back. And when people request them, we would take the whole boxes out. And that would mean we would sometimes be have these conveyor belts of putting them back in. So where this leads to Michael Moorcock is that I worked, I was one of two or three teens and worked with um, my uncles and a bunch of other people there. And um, at some point you couldn't fit in between the rows and there was nothing to do. So about, I don't know, 
to be honest, three to four hours of an eight hour a day, I had nothing to do. So I would bring my Michael Moorcock books and it was also one of my uncles, it was his son that had the library, I'll tie that together. And so I would read a Michael Moorcock paperback, like a book, like almost like every two days. Yeah. And it was, and it was just, it was, it was, you know, it was a great time. Yeah. Uh, it took you as long to read them, almost as long as it took him to write them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, it's, it's, but it's funny, you talk about the, like the difference in style and his changes in style. Yeah. Sometimes on Twitter, someone will pop up and say, um, what order should I read the Elric books in? And it's like, oh, that's a mind-blowing question. For, yeah, for, for me, the obvious answer is, I would always have said that you read him the, the order that you found him in second-hand bookshops when you were 14. <laughs> um, I but, guess. Sure. Yeah, but, but these days, people want to kind of read it in some kind of chronological order. But you go if you do that, you go from Elric of Melnibane, which is kind of like... Is is much more developed as a writer by that point. He's got the sixties out of the way. Then you go to Fortress of the Pearl, which he wrote in the eighties, which is a completely different style, yeah. and 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 actually I found quite heavy going. Then you go to Sailor on the Seas of Fate, which is stories he wrote in the sixties. So tonally and writing style wise, it's all over the place. Even though narrative yeah. chronology, it makes sense. But I remember reading, um, I remember reading Blood. And I think I maybe struggled a little bit with that, but I loved um, the War Amongst the Angels because I really, really liked all of that um, alternative London stuff and the tram barons yeah. and and all that stuff was really, really vivid and evocative. But yeah, I f- completely forgot what point I was trying to make there. But yeah, that kind of the the, the different writing. St- that's the point I was going to make. The different yeah. writing styles and let's sort of the heavier, more weighty stuff that is you know in some of his later novels like mother london for example and things like that what really surprised me going back and reading the eternal champion which is the 1967 or 68 version because there was a short story version in about 1960 is that it's it seems to be written with more drive and intent say for example than i don't know the dreaming city or the singing citadel or something like that mm-hmm. but it's definitely 60s mocock but the the themes and the impact of it are massive. And I don't think I really got it when I was 15 yeah. when I read it. But read, reading it now was was actually, in some ways, quite mind-blowing because of the themes that he's dealing with. And, yeah, really, really impressive. So even though his writing style is very much his late 60s writing style, nevertheless, the themes and what he's talking about, just like with the final program, are really massive yeah. and really weighty. Yeah, it's brilliant. You, you you alluded to it earlier when we were talking about um, music and fiction that you know there's a lot of variety here. Mm. I, I probably said this years ago in many quotes, but I'll give you a quick story. Um, I, I came to San Francisco uh, for their creative writing program and, and got a master's yeah. in um, English or creative writing. And my um, one of my early teachers who became uh, my advisor was a woman named Frances Mays. And I don't know if you know, she did the Under Tuscany uh, books and the movie. Okay, so um, anyways, her her poetry is not, you know, it's it's not out there. It's relatively conservative. And um, somebody in the class asked a question one day. And and I should back up and say the classes were made up of people who were like me, who had had four years of undergraduate work coming from another state. And then there were people in there really like housewives who somehow got into this master's program. Um, So it it was an odd mix of people coming from different ways of art. And someone asked the question, is it important to find your voice? 
And Frances, who inherently, like I said, I consider her relatively conservative in terms of what she writes. Her answer was, yes, it's important to find your voices. And that plural, mm. I've never, I have never ever forgotten it. And I kind of feel that, you know, intentionally or not, you know, Hawkwind with its 50 members over 50 years, yeah. you know, you keep having a different sound and you develop. And then, you know, an individual writer choosing to do stories that are sci-fi or fantasy, sword and sorcery, or fiction, or about the future versus the past, even. Yeah. And, and, and then growing in terms of your own voice. I, I To me, that's exciting. Mm. You know, I, I don't want to hear a band always sound the same playing the same songs. I don't want to necessarily read the same thing over and over. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, there's an inherent beauty. You know, some of it is, you know, surviving, which Mike has done well, and continuing to write mm -hmm. and, and developing his characters. But then also all the different approaches, whether they were, you know, sometimes in comic books. And, you know, I am hopeful that someday he does, you know, get to the screen or, you know, whether mm -hmm. that's... Uh, in a theater or on TV. Yeah. Um, of course, I worry about the quality of it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We've, we've had numerous discussions about this, and and whether we're we're pro or anti, or who should play him, or who should direct it, or who should produce it, and yeah, I mean, it's 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 something I would dearly love to see, but there's always that element of risk, isn't there? Like, <laughs> like the, the, yeah. the BBC have got the rights to um, the history of the Rune Staff and are supposedly pursuing. And, and actually have a script together for um, the history of the room staff. Yes, they do. Yeah. yeah. I, have a qu I have a question for you. You can actually, um, so we watched Doctor Who, yeah. which is, that's how, that's how the BBC. Yeah. Two questions. Yep. One is the quality of the audio that we get when we watch it here in the United States, at least on my TV set, the dialogue is mixed too low. Is this, um, you, is this the modern Doctor Who. Yes, or, yeah, the modern. Or... Yeah, yeah. The modern, the last two or three. Definitely the definitely the last, the current and the previous. It, do you experience that? One or of, is that one of my big beefs with modern Doctor Who is that the music is always too loud in the mix. And I don't know if that's we're part of that. Yeah, I don't know if we're talking about the same thing, but it drives me absolutely crackers watching modern Doctor Who because everything is so breathless and heightened. And it, Yeah, I love soundtracks. Yeah, and but it, it, I, I don't like it. it. It seems to be it seems to be entirely scored and sound edited and mixed for to, to barrel along for okay. fifty for fifty minutes and just yeah, get have, my, just get everything out of the way and it yeah. drives, honestly drives me crackers. Yeah, my wife and I have trouble understanding hearing things. Um, the second point is that they have a nasty habit of ending their scenes like almost like. It's almost like if you took a song and you have an ending, but for some reason you spliced it five using old terminology yeah. five seconds too early. Yeah, and, and I think it all it all plays into exactly the same thing. I, I grew up on Doctor Who with four or six episodes where, to be fair, four or six 20 to 25 minute episodes, and sometimes there was a lot of filling in there to pad it out, especially the six episode series. But they took the time. Whereas modern Doctor yeah. Who is seems to be made for people with a limited attention span, and it's it's whilst it's been extraordinarily popular, and I yeah. I just think I have to accept that Doctor Who is no longer for me. Yeah, <laughs> which it's, sometimes it's, it's, is tough to take. So is that is that cutting things off too early and pushing them? Is that true of other BBC shows? No, which is a 
Okay. No, it's okay. it's it's very very specific to what they've done to Doctor Who to modernise it. In, okay. in, in my oh. opinion, now I I must admit in, in this modern age of of things like Netflix and Prime and and all these other things, all these streaming services, I, I don't watch as much. I don't know. I suppose what do we used to call it? Terrestrial TV, as I used to. But BBC, their approach to things has very much changed over time. And one of my biggest worries about the BBC doing the history of the Rune Staff is, for almost my entire adult life, I have craved a period faithful adaptation of the War of the Worlds, yeah. and the BBC did it. And I was excited about it, and they announced it, and then it was delayed by a year, and it. And, and when it came out, it was one of it was so unbelievably disappointing. I, I now have a an edge of anxiety around the BBC yeah. ad- adapting anything dear to me. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mentioned before that I'm a big Marvel comics fan, yeah. and and while I haven't really read their comics, and I think it's been 20 years since I got out of it, you know, I, I really do enjoy most of what they've done, yeah. um, especially Disney, and and what's going on with WandaVision, with the timing. WandaVision of this. is absolutely oh. terrific. Yeah, um, what a surprise that show has been. Yeah, and and, and people end up talking, you know, like kind of like the old days yeah. when we were kids, you know, like what's going to happen next, what's going on. But we can talk through the internet yeah. instead of you know in high school or college. It's water cooler um, TV. Yeah, is no, that what you call it? Isn't it water cooler TV? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what I was going to say though was that yeah. So for the most part, I've been fine and accepting of the little changes that they make. Of course, I wish they would do a shout out, shout out to Mike and the multiverse. Yeah. That's a whole different story. But the one that really like drove me nuts is when Fox did the Spider-Man, the first trilogy. And they had, um, so I don't know if you read Spider-Man as a kid. No, no. Okay, uh, so so they had this great story. Great might be the wrong word, but this, um, this story where uh, Peter Parker was going with a woman named Gwen Stacy and at one point, the Green Goblin uh, sets it up where there's these kids on this trolley and he cuts it and he drops Gwen. And Spidey has to decide who to save. He saves the kids and then he goes to Gwen and actually he can't save her. She dies. And in fact, it might have even been when he catches her, her neck snaps. Yeah. That was a really amazing thing as a kid to read in a comic book. When they made the first Spidey movies with the Mary Jane character, which, you know, that was fine because there was his whole relationship with Mary Jane, they decided to have that scene. And I don't know if you remember, if you saw the movie. I, so, I, I did see them, but I think in my mind's eye, I'm getting mixed up now between the Andrew Gar- the Andrew Garfield one because... This is the Tobey Maguire one. Yeah, but they kill, they kill Gwen Stacy in the Andrew Garfield film, don't they? Uh, they may or may not. I can't remember. Yeah. But they did bring they did bring Gwen into that story. Yeah. But the one with um, Tobey Maguire, the Green Goblin does the same thing. Yeah. Except it's Mary Jane instead of Gwen. Yeah. And basically, Spidey saves the kids, and then he saves his girlfriend. Yeah. Why did they even bring that in there? Yeah. I I, I understand. So that drove know. me nuts, and obviously, I can't get it out of my system. And I'm yeah. telling you about it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one thing I would say is is that the and. People who listen to this podcast on a regular basis will know that on a couple of occasions I've mentioned Dan DeHaan. And I believe Dan DeHaan plays um, the Green Goblin in some way. He plays um, okay. 
but he plays the son of the Green Goblin. So is it Hobgoblin? Uh, Harry, Harry Osborn. Harry Osborn, yeah. Who does? Yeah, yeah. Denderhan plays him. And that's that's a, just another problem for that film. But yeah, I, I think on, on the whole, I'm really impressed with what Marvel's done. But as, as a kid, I didn't really read Marvel or DC Comics. I would come across the occasional Spider-Man comic or the occasional Hulk yeah. comic in a newsagent. But uh, I, I did read comics, but I read 2000 AD. So 2000 oh, AD okay. was was okay. was my my comic drug, um, yeah, yeah. up until probably the uh, the mid to late eighties. So you know, Judge Dredd, and and again another one of my big beefs, I suppose, is that the first Judge Dredd film was terrible. The second one, <laughs> the second one was absolutely amazing, but nobody went to see it, so we never got a yeah. sequel. But you know, we've never had any other um, 2000 AD character adapted in any way like that. Did Did uh, you read the uh, Frank Miller's Sin City stuff? I did, yeah, but okay. only because um, I, I lived with a guy who was collecting them, and I th- I'm pretty sure I'd read A Dame to Kill for um, before the film came out. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'd read those, and I'd also read um, Frank Miller's Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns as a collected. Yeah. Um, omnibus, and I've I've got Frank Miller's Daredevil years down here in a in a Marvel so hardback, right? Yeah. And those were those were prior to the Dark Knight, yeah. And and Daredevil, there's just things with Daredevil. It's one of my favorite characters. They even way before the Frank Miller stuff, they did some wonderful fun stuff. Yeah. So so I'd, I have read Marvel and DC, but mostly through yeah, yeah. collections. Collections um, in in more recent years. I never read them as yeah. a kid. But yeah. some some fairly good news is that um, we might actually get a Rogue Trooper movie, courtesy of Duncan Jones. That was uh, apparently that's apparently in production at the moment, so so that's quite exciting. But yeah, it's, I think if the BBC do History of the Room stuff, I, you know, I'll, I will I will watch it through through my fingers. Is um is CB Strike it might have a different name in England? Is that through BBC? J.K. Rowling under a different name? It's the Detective series. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would ask to ask Phil, my partner. She she'll she'll know those kind of things. Yeah, um, they're they're enjoyable. Right. They're, they're detective, but um, I think that's out of the BBC, and those are done nicely. Obviously, it's not uh, sword and sorcery. Yeah. And and there's there's no aliens. It's it's it is a detective series. Yeah. But those are done really nice, and no problems with the dialogue, and no problems with the cuts. And... Mm. Oh oh, I should I should throw one more thing. So the CV strikes stuff. So it turns out J.K. Rowling is a big fan of Blue Oyster Cult. Really? Yes. <laughs> well, and, well. And, and yes, and one of her books for this CB Strike series is called Career of Evil. No. And way. and it gets better. And I can tie it to this show. Every chapter has a song title or line from a song by Blue Oyster Cult. And that means that there's some lines from Mike. Unbelievable. Yes. So you should check out the book and the series then did have a couple episodes or a season. Their seasons are only like two or three episodes, but they did uh, adapt the uh, career of evil. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Six degrees of separation or whatever we call it. Yeah. It's yeah. a blast. It's that's, a blast. That's amazing. So, yeah. one of the things I was gonna gonna ask you about actually is you've you've mentioned your professor when you went to um, university. Oh, Francis. Yeah. yeah, but you've you've done poetry yourself, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I, um, uh, in undergraduate school, I, I went to a college called Shippensburg State University in Pennsylvania. My advisor there was a guy named John Taggart, who has many books published, and. Um, he saw what I was writing and uh, I, I became editor for the, the school would put out a, a multi, what would I call it? 
it was a magazine that had basically poetry, fiction, yeah. and some newspaper articles and photographs, like twice, I guess once a year. Yeah. And so um, I became the editor of that by my senior year. I even did a Hawkwind article, from my understanding, you know, from America, uh, in a New York Times style. But the reason I bring up John Taggart is um, he saw that my poetry leaned towards kind of an experimental side. And he introduced me to a guy named John Ashbery, who is one of the New York School of Poets. And one of the things that um, Ashbury would do is kind of break your expectations at the end of a line or two. And, you know, some of it feels like stream of consciousness mm. writing, but there's an aspect of that. And so I was doing a lot of experimental writing. And then um, by the time I got to California and was in the master's program, I would do, um, you know, some sound poetry, where and this is um I, I don't know if it's funny or brilliant but uh because of listening and, and my enjoyment of british music and british accents i would write poems where i would knock off the consonant and so <laughs> so i would have and, and even the first or second spirits burning album had some of this so i would have things like the ass ass mass ass of oof oof roof oof folds his on song on uh, under the inch inch bench inch could it be love? And then go from there. Yeah. Um, and then I, um, San Francisco had a really cool poetry uh, following and semblance. And so there were like little places that you could give readings and I would give readings and um, I would mix in, you know, the language poetry, the, the stuff where I break expectations. And then I would even like do, you know, I'd play a song with bass guitar and phase and sing, or I would hit, two clavies or something else and do a song, you know, do a poem in rhythm. Yeah. So I would try anything. And, um, you know, in retrospect, some of this stuff worked, some of it, you know, probably needed a second thought, take a step back. But I, I think it was a great learning ground to see what's possible and to take chances. And I think you can maybe see some connections with Mike's stuff with Hawkwind, where he was reading narration. You know, I, I think for me, while as a kid, you know, I would like, you know, there's a point where it only becomes a little too easy, like, yeah. you know, add delay, add effects, add distortion, that, okay, that's great. But, you know, I, you know there was a point in the 90s and early 2000s where every space rock band that was influenced by Hawkwind was doing that. And it's like, you know, take me somewhere new. What does that mean? And so, so I think there's a challenge there of like, what, what do you do with it? But yeah, I, I um, the one thing that I haven't done, I mean, I don't write poetry regularly anymore. It's more lyrics. Um, there are people who knew me in the 90s that didn't even know I did poetry or that I did lyrics. They thought I did only ambient music and then drum and bass. But one of the things, you know, with John Taggart is he did, he was really more into jazz musically uh, Keith Jarrett and Miles Davis and other people. And he came out here to California and gave a reading, I don't know if it was five, six years ago. And hearing, hearing him read his material, it was like a saxophone player doing a solo jazz performance. And it was just beautiful. Mm -hmm. I wish that I could write like that or would take the time to write like that 
or occasionally do music like that. So there, there is this side of me that wants to go back and do some experimental stuff. Yeah. Uh, more than the Grindelstone, uh, Dark Ambient. So we'll see if I ever go there. I, I do throw little bits in there in the rock stuff. And I know the, the new material with the end of all songs, you will hear me playing mixing wise with distortion. So th there are ways of like having these worlds coexist. Yeah. So how does your early days as a poet tie into no poetry records? When I got to California and I'd been here a couple of years, there was a moment where I wasn't in a band that I was leading or co-leading. And I joined a punk band that had previously been called, uh, I think, Boy Trouble. And um, even though I was a bass player, I played a string ensemble with them. And I had, uh, I don't know if you, from your knowledge of guitar players, I had a big muff and a phase 90. So that's a, <laughs> so that's a distortion pedal yeah. and a phase pedal. And I basically would play chords and occasionally these one note leads where I would distort things. So it, you know, I, I was a little bit of influence from the Stranglers. I was a Strangler stand. And um, the band needed a name for my one and a half month with the band. And I suggested no poetry. They said yes, but N-O instead of N-O-H. So two things happened. They went on as no poetry for a year and then broke up. And um, I went on my merry way. And years later, when in the 90s, my wife and I were thinking about, okay, there's these, this material that I do that I can't get released or it's harder to shop around. So it was the non-spirits burning stuff the non-silent record stuff. And it was like, okay, my solo album, this duet ambient stuff. And we said, you know, let's go with no poetry, N-O-H, which I, I think is kind of a fun hmm. oxymoron or whatever you want to call it, to have, you know, N-O-H poetry. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's uh, what has happened the last year and a half. It's now a place to, as I get control for the, first decade plus of Spirits Burning to release the digital versions on um, Bandcamp. Fabulous. So one of my other questions for you was going to be, what else can we look forward to? So there's the Spirits Burning back catalogue to start with. Yes. Yeah. Um, I still, you know, I, I, I realize that I rarely, if ever, play live. Hmm. Spirits Burning did do a gig in England uh, in 2017 at Cosfest. <laughs> so it was one of the festivals. Um, if you want to talk more about that later, let me know. We'll talk about it. But, um, but you know, otherwise, I, I, I think it's the only time I've played live in the last 18 years. So I'm more of a studio guy. The big news, besides working on Spirits Burning and Michael Moorcock, The End of All Songs, is I'm finishing up an instrumental album uh, under the name Spirits Burning. It looks like Cleopatra Records will put it out. That probably means putting it in their queue. Um, I'm finishing the last three or four songs, mastering what happened at the end of this month. And it's an instrumental album that is all acoustic or acoustic-based instruments or sounds. Yeah. It's got a great cast on it. I guess I can tell you, um, I've been kind of holding back on it. We've got a slew of violinists. So there's David Cross, who was in King Crimson. Nice. We have Peter Knight, who is in Still I Span. We have Still I Span's current violinist, Jesse May Smart. We have Daryl Way, who was in Curved Air. We have Jonathan Siegel, who, who was on the 
deep fix and the uh, previous Spirits Burning Michael Moorcock albums. So he was Camper Van Beethoven. We have Graham Smith, who was Van der Graaff generator briefly, a big Van der Graaff fan. Uh, I can jump to that we also got David Jackson, sax player, uh, Wynn Reed player from Van der Graaff on three songs. We have Michael Moorcock on harmonica on three songs. Nice. Okay, so that was some outtakes from that session in Texas. Um, we have Theo Travis on flute, who has played with Soft Machine and Stephen Wilson. I'm looking at my whiteboard in front of me that has a bunch of song titles. I know I've left out a few. Uh, Al Bouchard did play um, drums on one piece, but it's got some interesting twists and turns. And I think that there's lots of bits of my ambient influence in here, even though it's not an ambient album and little bits of my places where I experiment. So mm -hmm. there's one place where I went to San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and I don't know the name of it, but there was this big life-size, there's a box that's like the inside of a piano with big strings. And I recorded myself going, you know, bing, bing. And then this, it like, reverberates for like 30 seconds. And then I had people come in like Harry Williamson who had played with Gong. And um, for people who don't know, there was a band called the Radio Actors years ago that did a single and it was Sting from Police, Future Police, uh, Harry Williamson, Steve Hillage, uh, Nick Turner. It's a little bit of Hawkman, a little bit of Gong. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it's not the greatest song ever, the two songs they did, but it's an incredible piece of history. Yeah that police kind of came out of the Gong family, actually. Yeah, yeah. Mike Howlett's on that, actually, from Gong. Because there was a, a Gong festival in Paris, and there was a band called Strontium uh, 90 that had the three guys from <laughs> three guys from police. Right. And um, so, uh, so anyways, um, that album should be coming out sometime this year. Yeah. yeah you, you've probably gathered, I love all this connectivity. And, you know, Mike's Multiverse has that. Hawkwind and their multiple lineups have that. And then when you have a collective and you bring all these people in, yeah. you get the same thing. Yeah. It's funny, those, those kind of connections. You just mentioned a band called Strontium 90 with, with English guys in it. Well, a 2000 AD character called Strontium Dog got his powers from a Strontium 90 shower. So who knows if there's some kind of connection there. Either that or they just saw it on a periodic table in chemistry class at school. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, yeah, one or the other. So what is there out there at the moment that's really inspiring you music-wise that you're not involved in? Given the nature of my day job, I occasionally can listen to things at work while, you know, sometimes like editing and so forth. And I try to like delve into people's catalogs who that I just missed the first time around. Yeah. And I would say over the last three years, maybe three to five years, I've really gotten into Nick Cave, uh, PJ Harvey, and Godspeed You Black Emperor. Ah, yeah. And um, the the PJ side, what she's done in the 21st century as a writer, I think is brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, Nick's a little more complicated than Nick Cave stuff, but um, I mentioned um, you know, Pieces of Distortion. Uh, two albums ago, the guy that works with him, whose name I'm forgetting, you know, they would have like three or four songs that have like this distortion on like a synth part underneath. And then they would do like, you know, a more, you know, almost kind of a traditional uh, rock approach on top of it. Um, and then the patience that he has 
like the latest thing that he did um ghosts um, ghost is in the title in yeah. the title but um the patience of that album it, it's almost like the beginning of a wandavision mm. in a way the first three episodes but if you stick with it by the time you get to the end it's it's actually heartbreaking mm. and, and really emotive and to, to listen to music where all of a sudden you get chills yeah um that's how it hits me and then yeah. godspeed's just the, um it's just amazing you know the the ebb and flow of this you know ensemble and where they go and then their use of sampled material how they bring in stuff yeah. so I, so I, i'm i'm almost looking for who are who is doing material of that value you know i still listen to you know my kate bushes and yeah. i keep buying hawkwind albums and offshoots um yeah i tend <laughs> to plenty like to go half, out. yeah yeah there is and i like a half the three-fourths of the albums i i sometimes get frustrated where it feels like it's not a band album because mm. I think that's when they're at their best, when everybody's involved and more people involved in more of the songs than not. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm going to go away and I am going to reinvest in some Nick Cage. Some Nick Cage. Nick Cage. Good God. Some Nick Cave. Because I hope I didn't say Nick Cage. No, you didn't. I did. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, there was a time when um, I think I didn't listen to anything other than Murder Ballads and the album that came after it for for okay. for about six months. So I do I do need to delve back into that. And also, um, yeah, I, I picked up on some Godspeed Black Emperor several years ago when I did part of a soundtrack to a film. Anyway, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Don. Thanks ever so much for coming on, and I really, really look forward to maybe talking to you again after you've yeah. uh, finished the end of all songs. Yeah, pleasure is mine as well. Uh, take care of yourself, you and yours, and uh, look forward to see where you go Super. in the future. Thank you. Adios. Tom's, and I can't wait to hear the end of all songs. I'm really looking forward to it. We'll come back to music again in a few shows' time, and I have a couple more artists lined up to talk more cocky and goodness and their inspirations and projects. In fact, we've been playing around with a few things in terms of what's coming next, and I'm unusually quite ahead of the game in some ways, in terms of having things fairly well mapped out for the next couple of months. Quite excitingly, though, at the time of recording this, I'm a couple of days out from running an online game of Stormbringer. We'll be playing it as written, and we'll feed back on that on a future show when we look at Mocock RPGs again, but I'm secretly hoping for at least three or four Oinian beggars, and a couple of Filcarian farmers, and I hope they'll roll enough money to have two-man canoes all round, maybe even a couple of jugs. A couple more shows are in the can, both of which are diversions from Mocock, but still firmly within the Pops's library wheelhouse, so watch this space. But it's time now to thank our marvellous patrons. Our Chaos Engineers... Hard at work rowing us towards, or maybe away, from the dark straits of Reglathium. We'll see who wins out in a few weeks, I'm sure. But I suspect Brute of Lashmar is a massive Danus fan, so that might tip the balance. But anyway, thanks to Andrew Cyclunus, Nelbert, Robbo, Andrew Van Ness, 
David Rashman, a.k.a. Cernus, John Lays, John Timothy Watt, Jim Kirkland, Simon Perrins, Mal Pertwee, Benjamin Fletcher, and Fred Keish. And thanks to our crafty Jugaderos, throwing dice on the deck with a blind steersman. Hopefully not taking too much advantage of him. But they are Randall Gatlin, Taylor, Craig, Greavesy, Laws, Tom Murphy, Alex Harris, Andrew Clark, Open Sussex, Ian Stead, Matthew Broom, and our new patron, Stephen Round. Welcome aboard, Pard. And our patron demons, Lord Norman of the Higher Worlds, baking near some rocks and about to dispense some sage advice to a lost airshipman. Joe Monty, furiously bashing his demon-bound typewriter of editing. Anthony Piconti, extolling the virtues of Georges-Louis Borges in the pages of Iconoclash. Check it out. The Lapsed Gamer, increasingly unlapsed as it happens as time goes by. The Destiny Knight, Neil Burton, recovering from his malaise and sketching pustules like there's no tomorrow, which there might not be. Bob McMillan, disgorger of news, a miraculous receiver of post, thought long lost to the swirling eddies of my own stupidity. To Dread Mortmain, basking in the glowing warmth of Amos. And Nathan, shredding his way through the grey fees in search of mighty rifts that will tear down the singularity. Stay tuned for chapter 10 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly after the transition, once again with Score and Atmos by Nand Soundtracks. The additional music extracts in this show that you've heard have been from Soiree of Fire by Spirits Burning and Michael Moorcock, and you can find the full track on the album An Alien Heat. So, until next time, you can gab with us and follow us, if you wish, on Twitter and Instagram at the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email the show at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The blog is breakfastintheruins.com, and we have our Patreon page too, and that even has a few Patreon exclusives. So take care, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Rods. Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly Chapter 10 
the child. As I gathered my wits and my clothes, the crying ebbed and flowed, pitching up and down between woeful despair and abject terror. Dressed, although not buttoned up exactly, I felt my way from the small cubicle out into the main area and cast around for some kind of weapon. After a minute or so, I landed upon what felt like a metal rod or tube curved in places, with a fitting midway down it. A handlebar, I realised, with a pang of initial disappointment, but its weight in my hand was reassuring. The crying of the child increased in intensity, and it appeared to be littered with words in a language I couldn't understand. My predicament came back to me in detail as my brain awoke more fully. I put this aside, determined to assist the child, possibly lost like myself and trying to flee something and gain entry to a safe place. My eyes were now well adjusted to the dark, and I was able to discern a line of undarkness that I judged to be at the base of the metal doors that in the past had allowed rail traffic into the warehouse. I made for it, and felt for something that would allow the doors to open. My fingers probed and found a large, rusted lever, and I put my weight to it. With a reluctant and rather disgusted creak, the lever shifted, and a clunk announced the unlocking of the gates. I heaved at my side of it and it gave way. Outside, the heavy air was once again aflame, albeit green, with the luminous thorax bugs and alive with their greasy fat filter-sweet buzzing. The child, now hoarsely howling in distress, had moved further around the outside of the walls. Renewing my grip on the handlebar, I climbed five steps and began to track my way around the platform above the exterior buffer stop. My skin prickled with fear. What could make a child cry so? It was deeply unnerving, and as I approached the corner, I realised I was moving closer to the river. Between the bugs and the moonlight penetrating the mist, visibility was reasonably good given the circumstances. And closing in on the now muted sobbing, I scanned the reeds around the wharf and craned for some sign of the child. The sobs turned to low, wet, guttural chuckling, and I realised I'd been had. The disgusting beast from the mire was a coward. It had continued to track me, awaiting its moment, then using sounds of a child's distress as a lure. How it had learned this trick, and how to so accurately imitate a terrified child, briefly crossed my mind as I set to a defensive posture. But I dismissed it as too horrible to contemplate. It heaved itself around the frame of the old crane, and came at me, babbling triumphantly in the strange language I'd heard earlier, and I could not know if it was real, or just the imitation of a beast. Again, my moderate athleticism, buoyed and refreshed by what must have been a good ten hours sleep, allowed me to strike first. The handlebar was long, and of a type children in my world would have called cow horns. I struck downwards towards the thing's face in the manner of a two-handed axe blow, making good contact. But once again the creature's face slid over and left across the bulk, and the bar impacted upon tough oily skin, akin to that of a massive seal or other blubber-protected animal. A limb struck outwards, but my previous experience had prepared me and I dodged aside, the timbers of the walkway leading to the wharf and crane platform creaking beneath me, but holding. We settled, the creature and I, into a quick rhythm of blow and counterblow that lasted three or four swings. Whilst I didn't seem to be doing any real damage with the handlebar, it seemed to fear it, and constantly shifted its facial features across its undulating body. The rhythm didn't last though, and with a cry of childlike frustration, it launched itself towards me, bodily, determined to crush, or smother me, or both. I dodged backwards once more, but this time the timbers had had enough of me and they gave beneath my left boot, trapping it around the ankle. 300 pounds of oily flesh threw me down and covered me with a suffocating weight. I felt my ankle snap as I fell back first to the platform, my scream muffled by the bodily caress of my adversary, which was now screaming in triumph. I felt a rib crack. 
My back began to take on splinters as I was dragged bodily over the timbers. I realised, as I gagged and heaved unsuccessfully to take breath, that it was dragging me towards the mire, there to do with me as it wished. My ankle still trapped, it was a white-hot spear of agony as my leg was dragged around, worsening the already acute angle that had destroyed it and threatening to tear it off altogether. Bile erupted into my mouth and I began to drown on it. The triumphant tones of the creature suddenly changed to sounds of dismay and babbling of half-words in that indeterminable language. The dragging ceased and the pressure on my ruined ankle eased, although the pain did not. The weight on my face lifted and I sucked in a breath before coughing the fiery bile from my acid-burned throat and windpipe. The bulk lifted now from my entire upper half and above me a whirling fire like a great catherine wheel on the bonfire nights of my youth forced the swamp beast backwards towards the crane. The whirling fire struck it with a great impact and it screamed in panic, gibbering now and moving further back, releasing my legs. The whirling fire, now appearing to be some sort of spiked brazier on a great chain, continued to strike home. The thing had now adopted a posture of supplication, and the muddled words came more rapidly but still broken, and once or twice I thought I could hear English words in amongst the babbling. Stop! Please! Forgive! Free of the thing now, I determined to address my ankle, but first the warrior wielding the brutal weapon stepped over me, glancing down briefly to make eye contact from beneath a determined brow. Move, she said. Would that it were so simple. She was wearing heavy robes of deep russet red and was bound all about with belts and straps and pouches. Her head was unadorned by any type of headdress, or even hair for that matter, but was moderately decorated with a combination of scars and what seemed in that dim light to be rather rudimentary tattoos. Agog at both her presence and my own good fortune that she happened upon me when she did, I stared as she beat the thing down until it eventually became unable to shift its face away from danger or beg for its life, and she grunted repeatedly in sync with the final blows that drove the pathetic but terrifying life from it. She stood now, panting for a few moments. Then the flames within the heavy spiked ball at the end of the chain died and fizzled out with a soft hiss. She said a few words I couldn't make out and made some gestures with her free hand before wrapping the chain about herself and tucking the weapon behind her so it would not move unbidden. She turned to me and stared. Her failure to blink unnerved me. She stooped by the splintered planks, patted her pouches and handed me a rolled wad of paper. Bite on this. I passed out a few seconds later. I came around back on the cot inside the warehouse. Now it was illuminated with a hanging lantern that was burning an oil of some type that seemed of a kind with that in the pastries. I'd come across some cultures in the insurgencies that still burned whale oil, and the smell was similar. As I was thinking this over, and in particular whether it would have any impact on me eating more of that pastry, and my conclusion was that it wouldn't, the woman came into the small room with some containers that she set up on the floor by the cot. She pulled up a small stool and seated herself by the now healthily crackling stove that had a battered copper kettle atop it. You ate my pastries, she said. I I'm sorry, I was very hungry. She thought this over and pushed one of the containers towards me with her foot, nodding at it. I reached over and pulled off the lid to poke around inside as she continued. You don't fit here. That's not the first time I've been told that, I replied, suddenly reflecting on the conflict with my arch enemy in flight school, 
Reginald Cornhenge, DFC Posthumus. Who's laughing now, Cornhenge? I thought quickly, and risked a brief smirk before the pain took over again. I glanced down at my leg. It was in a splint and bound in a heavy wrapping soaked with something or other. The pain remained, but it was significantly dulled. Where are you from? she asked. Cromer. I continued to root around in the container looking for something useful or edible. But I didn't really fit in there either. It was obvious from her unmoved face that she didn't know of Chroma, but then why would she? I'd spent most of my life trying to forget it. Being in such an unusual position with a woman put me in mind of Commander Moore, a dashing officer that had served on the Victoria Imperatrix before being reassigned. Rumour had it he'd slept with the captain's daughter, 25 years his junior, at an officer's ball. Connolly. Lieutenant Gerard Arthur Connolly, I said, and proffered my hand, suddenly realising in these peculiar circumstances that it perhaps came out as a bit of a mouthful. Ignoring my hand, she considered my name for a moment, then responded. I am Sister Selbrant Brainer, beloved of the Magisterial Prelate of the Capitular Weltenschauen of Samanen, Lady of the Winged Fire. In the back of my mind, Commander Moore said archly, but of course you are. My mouth opened and then closed again. I had nothing. <laughs>